The paper itself is not designed to say that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are a good thing or a bad thing. The goal of this paper is really to focus on one piece of that puzzle that I don't think has been previously explored. When millions of homeowners defaulted on their mortgages in 2008, many pointed the finger at two less obvious culprits, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. The two mega mortgage buyers had been picking up risky loans and selling them with a guarantee of repayment. This amplified the housing crisis and forced the federal government to step in and bail them out at taxpayer expense. Ever since, there's been a growing movement to dismantle Fannie and Freddie. But just last week, Chicago Harris assistant professor Benjamin Keyes released a new working paper. The paper suggests that Fannie and Freddie might be doing the economy a hidden favor by redistributing risk and cash to the tune of $20 billion. Professor Keyes, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Today, Keyes will tell us how he found this hidden equalizer and what it could mean for American housing policy. So historically, mortgages were originated by banks and held on their balance sheets. So you can think about the model of the film It's a Wonderful Life as an example of a small town bank where everyone knows everyone and credit is given both on the basis of hard information like how successful your store is, but also the soft information, knowing that you're a pillar of the community. Do you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. And this model of lending really changed going back actually uh, quite a ways in the, the 1960s and 70s in particular and really ramped up in the 80s where mortgages became securitized. And what that meant was that loans were now sold from banks' balance sheets, uh, bundled into securities, and then investors could invest in those securities, basically in the quality of those mortgages. What it did is it meant it freed up a lot of capital sitting on small banks' balance sheets, and it mm -hmm. meant that they were no longer susceptible to the same local risk. So if you were originating a lot of loans in the community and say the factory closed, then the bank was very heavily exposed to mortgage market risk or housing market risk in that community. Instead, what these uh, agencies were intended to do were basically to diversify risk and spread it around the country. So by bundling loans from every part of the country and then a bank would hold on to a slice of those securities, they were now uh, basically insured against some of that local risk. Right. Okay. And Fannie and Freddie were the two large players in this market. So Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were founded in order to basically be the, the federal backing of this type of securitization process. And they provide a large liquidity source when times are tough. So when a local bank might be suffering and not have a lot of uh, freely available capital, you always have Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in the background saying we'll happily buy a mortgage as long as it meets our standards. Right. And that provides liquidity to the housing market in a potentially depressed community. Mm -hmm. We're talking about what's called the secondary market, right? And so Fannie and Freddie themselves don't set interest rates per se, but they have a heavy influence on them. Care to explain that? They do have a heavy influence on interest rates because the market is, is in part determined by their set of fees and requirements. And because they're such large players in this market, Banks basically originate loans or brokers originate loans with the intention of selling them to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And so the standards and the costs that are imposed by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac 
in essence, become the the, the standard uh, pricing model. So Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac guarantee both the principal and interest payments of these mortgages in exchange for an insurance fee. And that insurance fee is called the guarantee fee in the parlance of Fannie and Freddie. And that is charged to banks and passed on to consumers. Right. So innocuous enough sounding. And yet a lot of people are not real happy with old Fannie and Freddie. I snooped around and found a Wall Street Journal op-ed from just December with a lot of colorful language calling Fannie and Freddie the toxic twins, government-created monsters, and making a very strong case to essentially dismantle them. Where did that come from? So, so I painted the view overall as one that freed up capital, spread risk, uh, provided liquidity, and, uh, and diversified, in a sense, local banks' uh, risk away from their local housing markets. But Fannie and Freddie have a flip side, which is that they are massive players in the market. And so they have a great deal of control over how uh, contracts are shaped, uh, the types of rules and regulations that are followed by, by banks, and then the implicit subsidy. And that's really what I think comes to the heart of most of the complaints, is that because they took on this form, so they were originally and I didn't mention this earlier, they were originally entirely government agencies, and they became uh, government-sponsored enterprises in the 1960s, where they became these sort of public-private partnerships. And they walked a fine line during this time period as they grew larger and larger, and they sort of became not just too big to to fail, but too big to regulate uh, because they became so powerful and because there were so many interests that were vested in them, they controlled a great deal of the market. And Throughout this time period, there was an implicit belief that the government would never allow Fannie and Freddie to fail, Mm -hmm. that because they were so large, because the housing market was such a crucial market, both for consumers and for for realtors, for home builders, for for others, that the idea of these firms collapsing would have been catastrophic. And so they always had this implicit backstop, which was never directly priced into the pricing of the mortgages. And so they grew at alarming rates. Uh, they had very little oversight and very little cost containment or interest in containing some of their costs. There were a number of controversies in the 90s and early 2000s on their accounting, which appears to have been quite flawed. And so there were a number of, of sort of red flags raised and a number of folks, including folks at the Federal Reserve, speaking up about the size of Fannie and Freddie and these advantages of Fannie and Freddie in terms of their funding costs that allowed them to grow so large. And then in 2007, 2008, this sort of came to a head, and the red flags became more than red flags. Exactly. So this was a period when loans began to go belly up, and partly that was uh, driven by activity in the subprime market, which we haven't talked about yet, but this is the other secondary market, a private market that was designed to both expand on and compete with uh, the offerings of the the securities from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And this private market expanded on uh, the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac guidelines in a few different dimensions. And so you can think about Fannie and Freddie as representing a relatively closed, high-quality segment of the market. They put guidelines on the size of the mortgage. They put guidelines on the amount of the down payment. They put guidelines on the amount of income that you would need to bring to the table, so a debt-to-income ratio the private market began to expand on all of these dimensions. And so you saw the subprime market expanding on the dimension of credit worthiness, where people with lower credit scores in particular could obtain loans through a market outside of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So Fannie and Freddie lost a dramatic amount of market share. And this is something that we show in detail in our paper. 
that during this period from roughly 2004 to 2006, they lost um, about 20% of market share. Uh, and they didn't uh, change their standards in response to try to keep up. And so the sort of astronomical growth of the housing market was in large part fueled by uh, the subprime market. But Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were also trying to keep up uh, to try to keep some of their market share. And so when the market turned downward, because they were so large, Fannie and Freddie were, were very exposed, not only in the set of loans that they guaranteed, but also in a portfolio of loans that they held as an investment. And when you think about diversifying risk, you would hope that Fannie and Freddie, because they were guaranteeing and insuring all of these mortgages, all these houses, they would diversify and basically short the housing market in their investment portfolio. And they did the opposite. They doubled down on housing. And that was partly because of regulatory constraints and what they were able to invest in. So AAA mortgage-backed securities were the most profitable investment at the time. And so at the same time they were guaranteeing all these mortgages, they were also investing in the mortgage market in part through buying subprime securities. So they were dramatically overexposed to a housing downturn, and even a relatively small downturn in house prices was sufficient to wipe out any capital that they had on hand. They didn't have a lot of capital on hand, and even what they did have was not nearly as liquid as cash. And so when the downturn came, they were just insolvent in a very rapid period of time, and this required uh, intervention from, uh, from Congress and from the Secretary of the Treasury to, to take them into conservatorship. Trying to think carefully about the, the differences in regional outcomes is a really important component to understand the broader implications of the boom and bust. Different parts of the country had very different experiences in the housing boom and bust. We saw places like Boston have a very early housing boom. House prices started rising in a place like Boston really in the mid-1990s. There was a lot of demand for, for housing there. Places like Las Vegas had a very late boom, and the, the shape of that boom took on a very different kind of tone where it was a lot more investors coming in, a lot more second homes. Um, and so trying to understand something about the implications of these regional differences was really important to me. And thinking about the mechanisms by which we share risk in, in the country. And so one of the things that we do in the paper is discuss the different ways in, in which uh, a country like the United States shares risk. And one way to do that is through a tax and transfer system. We talk about automatic stabilizers in the fiscal system. So things like unemployment insurance or food stamps. So mm -hmm. one part of the country experiences a recession food stamp take-up goes up in those places, and their tax liability goes down because they have less income. And that's supported by the rest of the country that might not be doing as poorly. That's one way to sort of share risk. Another way to share risk is simply through mobility. So the Rust Belt experiences uh, closures and steel mills, and people just move. They move to other cities. That's one way to do it. And so what we began to think about was, well, there are other mechanisms, and one of those is the lending market. And so if we think about interest rates, one way to deal with a, a short-term recession is to borrow. And if interest rates are set at a local level, then the folks who are hit with that recession are going to bear the brunt of that in terms of the cost of borrowing. Because they're now a riskier group, uh, they have a higher likelihood of default, and so lenders are going to price that into the loans that they'd like to take out. So when those borrowers need those loans most, they'll be most expensive. In contrast, if interest rates are set at a national level, 
then the rest of the country, just like with food stamps or with unemployment insurance, helps the region that's being hurt by paying slightly more for interest, for borrowing, for the price of credit than they otherwise would. And the folks in the place that's hit pay less than they otherwise would. And in a sense, that's cross-subsidizing from the places that were hit hardest, getting a benefit, and the places that were hit least hard, basically paying uh, an extra cost to help those places out. And I think one of the things that we wanted to document and better understand in this project was just how widespread is that phenomenon, this idea of sharing the cost of credit across the country and whether it's actually a big deal or not. And so that was a, sort of an open question to us entering this project, whether this was going to be something that we thought was quantitatively important or something that we thought was just sort of rounding error relative to right. other programs like food stamps or unemployment insurance. Okay. So you looked at Fannie and Freddie and the way they're influencing and essentially helping set interest rates. And you, who did you compare them to? Yeah, so the first thing we wanted to do was just document that Fannie and Freddie don't differentially price across the country based on regional risk. And so that was the starting point in terms of the empirical work in the paper was to show that sort of conditional on the, on the individual's characteristics, uh, a riskier market like Las Vegas wasn't being priced any differently than uh, a safe market like Des Moines, which simply didn't have a lot of house price fluctuations over this time period. And so we were able to show that. And you can, you can sort of see that from the material that Fannie and Freddie make public about how they do their pricing, that they, they don't really, really do this. And what we did is we compared this constant pricing from Fannie and Freddie to what was going on in this private market that I mentioned earlier. And in the, the part of the private market where we do the comparison in the paper is this jumbo market. So these are the loans that are larger than the conforming loan limit. In uh, 2006, this limit was $416,000, I believe. And so think about the loans that were just a bit bigger than that. These tend to be similar borrowers, uh, similarly high credit, similarly uh, high documentation, uh, but what we show in the paper is that in this market, they actually did attempt to price some of the regional risk. Mm -hmm. So, And why, this is really interesting, explain why Freddie and Fannie didn't do that. So we're, we're forced to speculate a bit on, on this dimension in the paper because uh, we can't get anyone on record to say exactly right. why they don't. <laughs> uh, we, we think that they're leaving quite a bit of money on the table by not tailoring their interest rates more closely to risk when at the end of the day, they're the guarantor of principal and interest, right? Right. So they're not passing this along to investors. They're the ones who actually guarantee the loans. Uh, we think that they're constrained for political economy reasons more than anything else. And if you look at the recent history of, of Fannie and Freddie, they've made efforts to, to diversify pricing across regional lines and have been unable to do so for political reasons. There's a very unique uh, set of uh, entrenched interests in the housing market. So on the one sure. hand, you have uh, realtors and home builders who want to keep the market going. And what this does, in essence, is it is it turns off this cross-subsidization. And it means that the housing markets in places where the economy is, is tanking are going to suffer that much more, right? And so what they wanted to do, they were basically arguing for this cross-subsidization, right? Arguing for this redistribution, of risk. And then on top of that, you have all the homeowners who are affected by this because at the end of the day, if house if new home buyers can't get credit, then that's going to reduce demand for housing in the region and everyone's house price is going to fall. Sure. All right. So here's the private market where they're acting more or less as they can to optimize their own 
situation. That's right. We don't know exactly what their constraints are, right? But we know that they're operating in a less con politically constrained environment than Fannie and Freddie. And in that less politically constrained environment, they in fact were trying to price some of this regional risk. Okay. So we started by making a simple comparison of the difference in pricing between uh, the riskiest markets and the least risky markets across the two different secondary mortgage markets. So how different are the prices in Fannie and Freddie between the riskiest and the least risky? Well, the prices are essentially identical. Uh, how different are the prices between the most and least risky in the private market? Well, think about roughly a 25 basis point difference in interest rate. That's a quarter of a point. Now, I think one of the challenges that a lot of people have is mapping basis points uh, when it, where I'm talking about uh, hundredths of an interest rate into the dollar impact. And one of the things about the mortgage market, because it's so large, is that even a small difference in interest rates maps into a very large aggregate impact. And so 25 basis points, think about that on a $200,000 mortgage, and then think about how many mortgages there are in the country, that ends up being an extremely large, large number. And so we tried to convert that number into, into something like the magnitude of redistribution from the most risky markets to the least risky markets. And to do that, we actually needed a more sophisticated model. And what we end up estimating is that the, the difference from sort of the best markets to the worst markets is a transfer, a one-time transfer of around $1,800 per household. And that number is actually quite large. So if you compare that number to things like uh, the recent tax rebates during the dot-com recession and the Great Recession, um, or you compare that to, say, outlays from unemployment insurance, you know, this is this is actually quite a large number. Yeah. So if you add each side uh, of the market, you get a you get a transfer that's that's on that order of magnitude. And we tried to scale that up in terms of the sort of total number of, of households that are in the mortgage market. And we ended up with a number that was uh, it's on the order of 20 billion dollars, half of the size of the unemployment insurance system. So it's Big. Which is quite large, which is quite large and which expanded dramatically during the Great Recession. So when we think about the automatic stabilizers, and we can, we're, we're happy to say that unemployment insurance is one of the largest and most effective uh, automatic stabilizers, this constant interest rate policy is right there behind it as, uh, as a potentially very important uh, way in which regional shocks are smoothed across the United States. Were you surprised by that number? We were surprised by that number. I think when you do empirical work like this, you want to be extremely careful with uh, when you scale up from a, from a small number to a big number and make sure that all of your steps are correct. I, I think um, we've tried to be fairly conservative in terms of uh, the way in which we calibrated the model to, to come up with that number. But I was surprised uh, that it was quite as large as it was. Um, but what we weren't surprised by was the fact that the private market was really making an effort uh, to price this regional risk, right? Because right. the the investors in this market didn't have the backing of Fannie and Freddie, and so they were exposed to default risk right. in a way that a in a way that it, that investors in Fannie and Freddie uh, bonds were simply not. And so, with a lot to lose, we weren't surprised that they were trying to take into account the fact that hey, it turns out that lending in Las Vegas is a riskier proposition than lending in Pittsburgh, and we should incorporate that into our pricing models. There's all these different programs that you know redistribute. So relative to unemployment or maybe something like food stamps, even is this an efficient way 
to do that? I mean, what are the sort of pros and cons of this as a cross-subsidizer? That's a great question. I think the, the challenge is with any of these types of automatic stabilizers or ways to redistribute risk is to think about this efficiency question. And it's, it's a hard one because when you're thinking about something like food stamps or unemployment insurance, we know that those are funded through taxes and taxes distort behavior on the margin. So when we're trying to determine what's the most efficient way to transfer risk, we need to be really careful in thinking about what policy is the most distortionary on the other side of the market and whether the subsidy itself is the most effective. So we can compare the insurance value from unemployment insurance, which only goes to those who have lost their jobs, to food stamps, which may hit a wider group of people who are not necessarily qualified for unemployment insurance, to this type of constant interest rate policy, which really only affects homeowners because we're not looking at other sources of credit. We'd love to. We'd love to get the data on, on other sources of, of credit. But for this project, we're focused on, on the mortgage market. So the challenge is, whether, is to determine whether the distortions from the marginal dollar of tax are any more or less distortionary than the distortions from uh, increasing interest rates in safer markets, right? Because the good folks of Pittsburgh uh, and other similar safe housing markets uh, were paying this extra cost. And so the question is, how much did that distort behavior. Um, did that mean that homeowners or potential homeowners waited on the sidelines longer than they otherwise would have? That's what our model suggests. And it also means that they're paying more for housing, which distorts their consumption towards housing and away from, from other things. But it also might lead them to buy less housing, right. which they might not be happy about. At the same time, we might worry that this subsidy could encourage risk-taking in the future. So knowing that there is a floor in a sense, in a local housing market because the government's going to step in and help provide liquidity through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac at a reasonable price uh, and at a not in risk adjusted price uh, could potentially allow for greater risk taking. And so we would think about this as the moral hazard of, of an insurance policy like this one. Sure. So with all these considerations, what do you expect the response to this paper is going to be, I guess, from, from both camps? We're going to be very interested to see <laughs> how this paper is perceived uh, from both sides. I think we're trying to, to, to raise this point as a recognition that there are a lot of proposals out there to reform Fannie and Freddie. And what we're showing in this paper is it's highly unlikely that a, a private system would replicate this redistributive benefit. And so when we're thinking about the, the future design of Fannie and Freddie, we need to think about, well, is, do we want to impose this kind of redistributive benefit to occur automatically? Do we want to tie the hands of the private uh, market in the future to require this type of pricing uh, in order to provide this, uh, this benefit? Or do we want to allow the private market to operate in an unfettered way to price risk regionally? And that's going to end this cross-subsidization and potentially worsen the experiences in some regions versus others. I think it's going to be perceived on the side of the, the opponents of Fannie and Freddie to say that this is a way in which Fannie and Freddie were mispricing risk, mm -hmm. that they uh, were leaving money on the table by not charging some places more than they presumably could have. There's going to be a group of people on, on sort of the other side who say, look, here's another benefit that, that we weren't necessarily cognizant of and not necessarily aware 
of the magnitude of that that having more government involvement in the housing market can help to smooth some of these regional shocks. Mm-hmm. So I think the the paper is going to be taken uh, and hopefully not stretched too far in either direction, but but hopefully <laughs> recognized for for our actual goal, which is to make this this point very clearly and saliently that there that there is this way in which regional risk can be mitigated through interest rate policy. The paper itself is not designed to say that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are a good thing or a bad thing. And we're not trying to estimate the overall welfare impact of their existence. As we talked about earlier, they have a wide range of responsibilities uh, and a wide range of drawbacks. And so the goal of this paper is really to focus on one piece of that puzzle that I don't think has been previously explored. And uh, hopefully as research grows in this area, this will be sort of one brick in the wall as we uh, get a better understanding of uh, whether the future mortgage market should have a lot of government involvement in it or not. You know, every country in the world has some government involvement in their housing market. It's rare that housing markets operate independently of government regulation and of government involvement, and in particular of government backstops to provide that liquidity, right? Right. So when downturns occur and lending markets dry up, someone needs to be there to step in, and that's usually the government in some form or another. Um, So I think it's really important to, you know, the the counterfactual here is not that the government just steps out of the housing market entirely. Uh, The question is exactly what form does that government backstop take? Does it end up looking more like catastrophe insurance rather than playing such a direct role in setting standards? Professor Keyes, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't heard, Radio Harris is now on iTunes and Stitcher, so please add us to your podcast lineup. This episode was produced by me, Jake Smith, with music from A Smile for Timbuktu, Manu Srivastava, and Christian Bjorklund. Until next time, this is Radio Harris.